I'm Khalil Ekolona, and this is Nashville. Today's show is a haberdashery of useful information. I know you're probably saying to yourself, this is Nashville always provides useful information. Well, thanks. That is a part of our mission after all. But later in the hour, we're talking taxes. We're fast approaching the deadline to file, and we have a few experts to help answer your questions. By the way, it's not too late to send us those questions. Tweet us at thisisnashville. And if you thought filing your taxes was confusing, have you been to the Bell Road exit from I-24? That thing is flummoxing and kind of scary. We'll find out exactly why traffic flow is such a mess there in a regular installment of Curious Nashville. But first, it looks like Tennessee will not be going the way of Texas in its abortion law. But there is one new abortion regulation still being debated in the state legislature that could have a larger impact than appears at first glance. Here with an update on abortion measures in Tennessee is WPLN's Blake Farmer. Blake, howdy. (laughs) Howdy, Khalil. Thank you for being with us, my friend. So let's start with this. This Texas-style proposal that would have allowed anyone to sue people who aid and abet in an abortion— Other Republican-led states have been passing similar laws, but this one is no longer being considered in Tennessee. Why? That's correct. Just not this year anyway. At least um, that's the word from Senator Mark Pody, who's a Republican from Lebanon, who uh, told me he was going to uh, take this off notice, uh, is the parlance in the legislature for the year, but, but, but said he'd bring it back next year if he could. Basically, what happened is Governor Bill Lee and other Republican leaders in the state, including Senate Speaker Randy McNally, um, they said they were concerned about interference with an ongoing court case about the state's um, heartbeat law, basically a ban on abortions after cardiac activity can be um, detected. That's around six weeks. So, you know, there's some debate in anti-abortion camps even about whether changing this law the way Mark Pody wanted to do would really complicate that court case. But either way, uh, the statement to us from Governor Lee's office was that he's hopeful that none of it will really matter come this summer when many believe that Roe versus Wade, this this you know Supreme Court case that has protected the right to abortion nationwide for decades, could be overturned. So you're talking about the Mississippi case that the Supreme Court took up that bans abortions after 18 weeks of pregnancy. If the high court decides with Mississippi, what does that mean for folks here in Tennessee? You know, I've been asking this very question to people who I I thought would really know the answer. And apparently the answer is it's hard to know because the decision won't necessarily be a a total overturning of Roe versus Wade. We, We don't know. But if overturned, Tennessee, like like about a dozen states, has what's called a trigger law. And if all goes as planned by those who wrote it uh, and actually talked to one of the attorneys in Chicago who wrote Tennessee's and, and several other states' uh, trigger laws, um, well, abortion would be mostly outlawed in Tennessee after a short waiting period. Um, and so that national protection w- would go away. Uh, but state lawmakers are already kind of planning for what could be a next phase in their fight against abortion, which is doing what they can to keep residents from getting help with an abortion outside the state. So exactly how would they be able to stop someone from going to another state to get an abortion? Well, right. I mean, you're not going to wall off the state or something. So um, though, I will say Missouri is debating 
something a, a bit like that Texas law we were talking about, mm. uh, where where folks can sue people who aid and abet with abortion, and you would be able to sue people who help someone else get an abortion out of state. Uh, we'll see where that goes. But in Tennessee and several other state legislatures, there are bills that are limiting medication abortions. So these are, are, are abortion by pills. This can be done uh, about uh, before 10 weeks of, of pregnancy. This is, mm. in fact, it, it represents a majority of abortions that are carried out these days uh, using medication like this. Tennessee has a proposal that has passed its committee votes now. Uh, it just passed all the committees this week, uh, which means that it, it'll it's on its way to be voted by the full House and Senate. And on its face, the, the bill just creates criminal penalties for physicians who do telemedicine abortion visits, uh, which is already forbidden in Tennessee. But there's also a single word change that, that is critically important. It requires that the physician dispenses the medication. During the debate, Senator Ramesh Ackberry, she's a Democrat from Memphis who supports abortion rights, she's the only lawmaker who really pressed beneath the surface a bit and, and actually talked to her about it this week, uh, about the misconceptions on this bill. People kind of think, okay, well, you pick up the drug at the pharmacy or you pick it up at the prescriber. What's the difference? Um, and they're not looking at it as a big picture or connecting the dots that any type of legislation like this is typically an assault on Roe v. Wade. And it's something that's coordinated among states. All right. So help us understand how making doctors dispense abortion pills could change things in Tennessee. Well, so usually you get medication from your pharmacy, right? Not not the doctor. So, you know, that is a change, but a fairly small change at this moment. But some doctors who provide abortions, um, you know, in fact, they, they already will dispense this medication because uh, patients who are getting abortions sometimes can get um, hassled at, at their pharmacy. Um, but it could have big ramifications if Roe versus Wade goes away and abortion is basically outlawed in Tennessee. Well, explain why that is. Well, you, you already have states that during COVID allowed for telehealth visits for medical abortions. Um, and so you could conceivably see a doctor via telehealth, uh, maybe out of state, then pick up your prescription for mifepristone is the, is the name of the medication. Uh, it's a generic name at, at your local pharmacy here in Tennessee. Under this bill, that pharmacist could get in really big trouble. Um, Republican lawmakers are trying to make it so pharmacies basically couldn't fill that prescription because you, you must get this medication from the doctor. Of course, that's also a bit complicated because this is the same drug that's also prescribed to women who've had a miscarriage. So it, not sure how that's going to work. OK, but I thought you've told us that telehealth abortion consultations aren't allowed in Tennessee. Well, they're not. But Tennessee can't necessarily control all that happens outside the state. And this became a more uh, a more probable reality during the pandemic because the FDA actually loosened rules about telehealth visits for abortion medication and even uh, allowing doctors to to uh, send this medication to patients in the mail. And the Biden administration recently made those pandemic rules permanent. So back here in Tennessee, this bill seems to be taking aim at medication abortions. Where is it in the lawmaking process? 
Okay, so it passed its final committee votes this week, which means it's ready for full votes in the Senate and House. There doesn't seem to be a whole lot of resistance to it among Republicans, though we'll, we'll have to see. Frankly, there's been remarkably little debate, in, uh, at least in the House committees. Um, there, there was no mention, in fact, of this change in dispensing requirement, just talking about some of the criminal penalties that would be added. Um, that was only in the Senate committee that, that voted on the bill that, that really got in to the dispensing uh, part. And for what it's worth, the, the only committee uh, that, that dealt with this law, or the bill rather, in the Senate was the Judiciary Committee, which considers criminal matters usually, rather than the Health Committee, which abortion advocates argue is a more appropriate place for such a change to be considered. More to come, I'm sure. Blake, thanks for the update. You're welcome. That's WPLN reporter Blake Farmer. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll be talking about taxes. You can turn that frown upside down because we're offering you some help and insights from a panel of experts. If you have questions about taxes, we'd love to hear them. Just tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil E. Colonna, and this is Nashville. It's April, which means it's time to file your taxes if you haven't already. The deadline is April 18th, which is just a week and a half away. We know taxes are hard. We want to help. Today in a segment we're calling Budget Crunch, we're going to help you survive and thrive on a budget in this town. And we're going to start by answering your questions about how to file your taxes. It's not too late to send them our way. Tweet us at ThisIsNashville or email ThisIsNashville at WPLN.org. To help us answer these questions, I'd like to welcome our panelists. First up is Lucia White. She's a former bank teller and current manager at Warby Parker. We invited her today because she is a personal budgeting enthusiast. Lucia, thanks for being here. Welcome to This Is Nashville. Thanks so much for having me today. I'm really, really excited to talk about taxes. Oh, yes. That's wonderful because I'm excited to talk about taxes with you. So I understand that you developed a love for budgeting after a pretty scary post-college tax situation you weren't prepared for. Tell me about that. Oh, my goodness. Mm -hmm. My goodness. So it's my first job um, out of college. I do my W-4, I get my first paycheck, and I'm like, ooh, they are paying me way more money than I thought I would. I'm like, ooh, money, money, money. I'm not going to be struggling this year. <laughs> Let's jump to a whole year later when it's time to get my taxes done. Um, go to, you know, some tax preparing place. So, so I didn't do it my, on my own this time. I went to a tax place. They get done, and she says, okay, so it looks like you're going to owe $2,000. And I said, mm, no, 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 no. You mean I'm going to get that money back? Uh -huh. I'm, I'm getting it back. And she says, no, you you owe $2,000. So whatever mistake I made on my W-4 caused me to owe money, and I've never owed money uh, to the government before. And I think it took me like maybe a year or two to pay that back. And I, listen, if I can help anyone else from making that same mistake, um, Listen, any advice that I can, you know, give today, I'd, I'd love to share. So what did you learn from that experience? 
uh, figure out how to do your W-4. <laughs> uh, the next time, the next time I did uh, my W-4, um, I think I asked a coworker or something I'm like, I, I need to make sure they take all of, of the money out. And this is like before they made changes to the W-4. Um, and so from, from that point on, I made sure whatever, um, I can't remember what it's called, but, um, you know, the zero, the one or the two, whatever number I put was so that that so that I knew for a fact they were taking a lot of taxes out and I would get it back versus me saying, oh, don't take anything out. Because that's what I did when I filled it out the first time. I said, mm, don't take anything out. Uh, I'll just pay you at the end of the year. Yeah, we, we don't need to do that anymore. <laughs> okay, learn the lesson. And so so tell me, how did you change your approach to financial planning as you got older? Wow, I budget, everything. Um, before I, before I even start thinking of a purchase, I see, do I have, uh, do I have the money for it? Um, there's someone I follow on Instagram. She actually gave really good, good advice. She said, if you don't have the money to pay for something twice, you don't actually, you can't, you can't afford it. So, um, I'm not quite there yet, but I budget every month. I write down, um, all of my bills for the for the current month, the next month, I set aside that money. I literally look at how much I make. And if my expenses are more than that, then I'm like, okay, well, I need to cut it out. And that seems very simple, but a lot of people don't sit down and do that. They just put the money in their account and they spend it. And I'm like, how do you, how do you know if you have the money for it? And they're like, listen, we only got one life. And I'm like, yeah, it's going to be a hard one if you're not budgeting. So yeah, <laughs> yeah just from all the mistakes that I've made in the past, you know, getting apartments that I thought I had the money for. Um, I mean, honestly, I got this way through all the mistakes that I've made with credit cards and taxes and that. Um, and one day I said, no, I got to get my money right. I don't want to feel, I don't like feeling destitute and like I'm pinching pennies. So I could get whatever I want right now, but I also know I can't get more than, than what the money I have, if that makes sense. Yes. Yes. Living within our means. Always. Yeah. That was a short way of put, saying it. Always Thank you. sound financial <laughs> advice. Hey, I got your back. Cause you have ours. So now Thank it's you. time. We're going to bring in our next panelist. Shannon McDonald loves helping people broaden their financial literacy so much that she is close to acquiring her license for certified financial planning. That means you can trust her. Shannon, welcome to This is Nashville. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm absolutely thrilled to be here. So you have experience as a high school teacher and yes. as a healthcare consultant. Ex yes. Explain to me how that sets you up to assist people with their financial planning. Oh, thank you so much. Um, so I started off um, growing up in a household with a entrepreneur and just learning kind of from the ground up how to start things. And I started off working in healthcare consulting and learning the intricacies of insurance and just how complicated um, insurance can be, especially on the end consumer and covering all your healthcare needs and how charges can vary and changes. So healthcare was a, a very interesting field and definitely made me want to help the individual consumer on the other end of insurance because there's so many red, so much red tape uh, in healthcare. Then high school science teacher, I absolutely love science and I love teaching and educating. Um, so when I wasn't too thrilled about healthcare, uh, I said, okay, well, what can I do? 
uh, well, let me help people and let me teach people because I, well, that's a passion of mine. And then uh, I was a teacher on the south in the south side of Chicago for about three years, hmm. um, which I absolutely loved. But it was it was challenging uh, to say the least. And then I had two uh, adorable, amazing children, and decided to switch into financial planning because it gives me all those things that I have always wanted. It gives me the ability to help and educate others. It gives me the ability to kind of help navigate some of these crazy complicated financial situations, such as healthcare, such as taxes, such as estate planning. Um, and I absolutely love what I do. So thank you. <laughs> That's amazing. Thank you for being with us. So, you know, you're, you're really close to getting your license for certified financial planning for those yes. who may not know what is a CFP. Yeah. A CFP is again, it's a certified financial planner and it's kind of, um, a credential that says that I am a fiduciary, which means that no matter who I'm talking to, if you all, all of the listeners, um, my own clients, it means that I am always putting their needs above my own. I'm always taking into consideration their specific circumstances. Because one of the things that I've found out is that everyone's financial needs are going to be different. And the advice that you recommend for everyone is very different depending on their very specific circumstances. So I will never take into account, oh, well, I'm going to earn money here. Let me give them this advice. That's that's the farthest thing from the top of my mind. Uh, for me, it's always, OK, how can I help this person pay less taxes? How can I help this person understand and not have to pay a penalty? How can I help them uh, kind of bring all of their financial matters together uh, and kind of solidify it and make it clear and help them kind of on a very very large scale from taxes to estate to insurance to retirement planning and all of those fun things. So you're providing an assurance and security that people can trust you. Yes. That's wonderful. So Shannon, tell me, what are some of the unexpected things people may discover this tax season? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I do want to start off by saying really quick, that uh, my opinions are absolutely based on my professional experience, but I can't give specific advice. And I do want to emphasize that if anyone listening has really specific questions or advice that they need to seek a, a specific tax planner or professional for them. Um, but, you know, for the 2021 season tax season that's coming up, there's a few things that we've never experienced before. We had a pandemic that in 2020 and while well, continuing, that really threw things kind of into a tizzy for taxes. Um, the child tax credit that was expanded in 2021 is um, was half paid out from July to December. So a lot of people received a tax credit check in the mail every month and were like, oh, this is awesome. And then they spent it. Well, that means that when they file their taxes, upcoming already done or by the 18th, that their credit that they would have put on their taxes right then is going to be less. Hmm. So a quick example, if you've got two kids in 2020, you would have gotten $4,000 just back saying, okay, you have two kids. You don't have to pay this extra $4,000 on your taxes. It's a credit. It's great. It's the best thing you can get on your taxes. Versus in 2021, from July to December, they would have received a small check. But then when they're filing their taxes, they're only going to get credit for about $3,000. So they might owe more than they typically would have in a past year and not realize they've already been paid some of that money back. Um, another thing that a lot of people get tripped up on is 
like if you're in a 1099 employee, you're a consultant or you're, 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 employer isn't withholding any taxes and you're going to have to pay quarterly tax payments or you're going to have to owe extra to um, to the government. Uh, those are just a few of the things that kind of pop to the top of my mind. I definitely have a question about 1099s coming up later. But before mm-hmm. that, Lucia, do you have a question for Shannon? You know, uh, when Shannon was talking about how everyone's needs are slightly different, so I'm the first thing that came to mind is like you know Nashville we're full of musicians. I um I on my team I actually manage a few people who not only you know work at Warby Parker but they're also musicians. So for someone who has like you know they're getting a regular check, taxes are are getting are being pulled out, and they're also like you know a musician. Would you recommend them go to a specific tax person or would you recommend that they go to um, just any 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 tax person or do it themselves? What, what would you actually uh, recommend, Shannon? Well, it, I mean, and this is probably something I'm going to say a lot. It depends. Um, it really mm-hmm. depends on how complicated they are. Um, and I don't mean that in a negative or a positive way. It's just everyone has different specific needs. So say someone has just plain W-2 income from Warby Parker, and then mm-hmm. they also on the side have a little bit of income as a 1099. Mm-hmm. Well, the Warby Parker is withholding taxes, and that's already in the government's hands, but their 1099 income, there's no taxes withheld. I would say, you know, it's definitely good to go to a specific tax person. Um, I know a lot of people also use things like uh, uh, TurboTax and H&R Block. Those things, those absolutely work well, but having someone who's certified to look at all your documents is the the key point, um, if that makes sense. Okay. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville. I'm your host, Khalil Ekelona. In a new segment we're calling Budget Crunch, we're talking taxes. Now, we've gotten some questions from our listeners, so let's get to it. First up is Erica Clayton, who just recently moved to the Nashville area. We started doing a peer space um, photography studio, and I had a question on filing quarterly taxes. How do you do that? Do I just add up the amount that we have made from PeerSpace and deduct what we've spent? Or do the deductions come at the end of the year? Um, Do I add up the total and multiply it by, I think it's 15%. Anything would be helpful. Thank you. Janin, what's your advice for Erica? Well, absolutely. I would recommend she would go see a tax person. But on top, besides that, um, one of the things that she'll consider is, you know, for a, a business, um, your what you make minus expenses is kind of what your earnings are. And you don't file taxes on your expenses. So you don't have to pay taxes on anything that they're spending. So she would need to look at say, OK, how much do I think I'm going to earn this year? minus how much I think I'm going to pay expense wise and kind of get a total amount from there. And then with that total amount, there's something called a safe Harbor. Um, you want to always try to hit those safe Harbor limits. And what those safe Harbor limits means the IRS is not going to tax you. If you do the best of your ability to hit the safe Harbor and the safe Harbor is you're paying hundred percent of your last year's taxes So quarterly, you can pay 100% of what you paid last year or 90% of what you think you're going to owe. And now kind of going back to the quarterly bit, 
the IRS wants their money throughout the year because on a W-2, you're, you're pulling money and you're giving it to the government with every paycheck. On the 1099, you're not doing that. Or with self-employment income, you're not doing that. The government wants their money. So they want you to pay it to them quarterly. And what quarterly means is on April 15th, pay a quarter of what you think you're going to earn. On June 15th, pay a quarter of what you think you're going to earn. On September 15th, same thing. And then finishing the year at January 15th. You can pay them online. Um, the IRS has several ways to try and calculate that. And they're not the easiest things to do, but they're also not the most complicated. So if you have a good idea of what you're going to earn, they have forms, I think, that you can try and fill out to get an estimate. But paying that estimate is vital on what you think you're going to earn, because if you don't pay it, they will probably penalize you. Okay, we've got another questioner from our listener, June. My 14-year-old son had started mowing lawns in the summer and walking dogs in the winter and has been incredibly successful and in the past year made over $2,300. I don't know what I'm supposed to do for his tax situation. Mostly he's paid in cash or online payments. Am I responsible for reporting those earnings? Shannon. (laughs) Well, that's always a fun um, question. So kind of He'd be considered self-employed, um, but as someone who's self-employed, they have someone has to report their earnings if, and that's earnings only, if it exceeds four hundred dollars. Now, since it's under eleven thousand, the mother could file it on her tax return. But I do want to say that's on earnings. So if he has had to put money into the business, or say he's had to market himself, he can deduct what he's done from that profit that he's gotten. So say, I think she said 23, uh, 2,300. I don't, I'm not, I don't remember the specific number. 2,300. Um, yeah. Yeah. 2,300. Um, he can deduct whatever it costs. Okay. What was the gasoline for mowing the yard, um, from that earnings. And as if, if he can deduct enough to get under 400, then he doesn't have to file taxes and neither does she. But if it's above that kind of $400 mark, the IRS says, you need to file and she can rep- file it on her own tax return. Okay. As long as he has a social. Okay. I mean, a 14 year old kid making $2,300 pretty much eliminates any need for allowance. So yeah. <laughs> we read. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we got a call <laughs> from Deborah Sando who wants to know how much to set aside each night from bartending tips. So she doesn't have to pay so much at the end of the year. Lucia, do you have any advice for Deborah? You know, I actually used to work at a restaurant, um, but as a server, um, I'm 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 going to be honest. I'm not familiar with. Um, I don't recall having conversations with our bartenders. Like, hey, how much money should you uh, put aside? Like, honestly, if it was me, I would like. I, I'm I'm kind of familiar with you know putting aside for tech. I probably like put aside twenty five percent because I'm just scary like that. Um, but I want to see what Shannon has to say, because this is actually a very good question that I would be happy to pass along to all my, you know, past bartender friends. <laughs> um, I'm happy to share my thoughts. I have never uh, bartended or, or waitress, so I've never had to deal with this personally. But I know um, per the IRS guidelines that they want 
people who are working in those type of tip industries to report their tips monthly to their employer. And when they do that, the employer is then supposed to go ahead and take the withholdings from that. However, there is another way to do it. If they don't report it to their employer, which they're supposed to do, there's a form. Um, and essentially, I, I forget the exact form number, so forgive me for not knowing that. But if they are working and earning tips on the separate form, they would need to pay essentially Social Security taxes and Medicare taxes on what they've earned. So there is a separate form to kind of fill out. I don't know too much more specifics besides that. All right. Well, here we have um, a volunteer wondering about deductions. So I moonlight two nights a week down on Demumbrian, uh, clearing out crowds, e-bikes as a uh, crime-fighting superhero vigilante. And after frothing over with justice twice a week, um, I feel like that should be reflected on my taxes. I should be able to deduct that. Should I take out a Schedule C even though I don't earn any income from that? Um, also, I'd like to do it anonymously. So how do I make that happen? <laughs> okay. So our friend has jokes I and mean, justice has been frothed Interesting over. question. Very, very. Um, but really, Shannon, I feel like there's something here that could apply to a lot of people. How should people who van volunteer, how should they handle everything when they're filing their taxes? Absolutely. That's a great question. So volunteer, um, sadly, you cannot take a deduction for your time. You can only take a deduction for something that's quantifiable, like traveling to where you're volunteering. So you can say, what's the travel? What's the gas mileage? Um, what are the expenses about traveling to my location for I'm volunteering? You can't actually say my time has value, which kind of hurts me because yeah. I think everyone's time has value. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, but on your taxes, what you can deduct are those little expenses around your time. And what you can deduct is what you give to charity as well. Now, the deduction has is only located um, as an itemized deduction. So in order to take a deduction for volunteer, you have to have enough itemized deductions to make it worth your while. Uh, and what I say, make it worth your while, forgive me, I don't mean that in a negative way, but the, um, the standard deduction for everyone has increased so much recently that it's pretty hard to build up your itemized deductions to be higher than the standard deduction. Um, that's kind of a long roundabout answer, but you can deduct your expenses to volunteer if you itemize. Okay. I understand. And apparently the IRS does not understand the idiom. Time is money. So, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> okay. Now COVID allowed us to take money from our 401ks without penalty, though you still have to pay taxes on it. Our listener, William asks, if you're regularly contributing to a 401k plan anyway, does that amount count toward repayment? Shannon. That's a really good question that I don't know. Uh, the specific answer to kind of off the top of my head. Um, I know that contributions to a 401k are limited. You can only do a certain amount per year. Um, I don't, if it's a loan, those actually, as I'm thinking about it, I can give you an answer. Um, loans that you're repaying don't go towards those maximums. 
I'm 90% sure. Um, <laughs> but I don't want to to say the wrong thing anyway. All right. There are a lot of self-employed folks living here in town. What are some of the more common mistakes self-employed people make on their taxes? Shannon, do a lot of people leave money on the table? Well, it's actually, they don't, well, it's hard to say. Um, I have seen some people leave a lot of money on the table and they'll pay higher quarterly estimates. But a lot of self-employed individuals will really try to hit the safe harbor, um, which just kind of guarantees that they're not going to get penalized. Um, that safe harbor says, I'm either going to pay 100% of my taxes from last year. So whatever those self-employed individuals paid last year, they're just going to pay quarterly. And that means that they could get a big refund check. But instead of saying, okay, I made a lot of money last year, I'm not going to make the same amount this year, I don't need to pay as much, you always run the risk of being penalized. Um, so mm-hmm. kind of, I don't know if that answers your question or not. <laughs> We'll see. I mean, that's why we're doing this, to all get more informed. Lucia, what advice would you like to give folks this tax season? Get it done. Get it now. (laughs) Like, because I think taxes are due in about uh, on the 18th, so in a few weeks. So I would plan to get it done now. Um, If you feel like you're not going to make that deadline, go ahead and submit for the extension now versus, um, you know, trying to find some place on the 17th um, or or 18th. Um, I feel like it gives you a little bit of breathing room uh, versus like, oh my gosh, I gotta, where's where's my W-2? Where's this one? There's that one, especially if you work, um, if you worked like maybe two jobs in one year, you have to find those W-2s. And if you, if you can't find them at home, you have to go back to the company. So keep all of that in mind when it comes to doing your taxes. Do you have everything? Do you have a date? Um, don't wait to the last minute. If you, if you can't find your W-2s now, I would honestly just say, go ahead and file for an extension because it's better safe than sorry. Now we are going to work on getting some answers to the questions we couldn't answer live for you all. We will share those online, but I want to give props to our panelists for this first installment of a segment we're calling Budget Crunch. They are Shannon McDonald and Lucia White. Thanks to you both for joining us and sharing your insights on taxes today. And yes, don't forget to file your taxes by April 18th, y'all. We have to take a short break. When we come back, Curious Nashville is here to help solve a mystery of why the Bell Road exit off of I-24 is such a mess. We'd love to hear your thoughts. So tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil Colonna, and this is Nashville. Over the years, we've been collecting your wildest questions here at WPLN and answering them. Over time, we've been stitching together bits of local history through our special project, Curious Nashville. Well, Curious Nashville is back. A few times a month, we're going to answer these questions here on our show. So let's get right to it. Last year, Listener Rusty Keene submitted a question, and we are happy to have her with us now. Rusty, welcome to This is Nashville. 
Hello. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for being here. Thanks for your question. So let's get to it. What was your question? Well, uh, my question was, I'd love to know the design story behind the Bell Road exit because it's a very interestingly designed uh, piece of road. And then if there's any possible solutions now that they are just continuing construction, especially apartment and home building in that area. That is a question a lot of us have had. I know. Uh, also, for anyone who heard our promos last night, I misspoke and I said I-25 instead of I-24. I'm sorry about that. My bad. It is true that I have not actually driven at this intersection, but I do know about frustrating traffic. So, Rusty, what led you to ask this question? Yeah, so I've lived off of Bell Road since 2016, and uh, for a long time, that was sort of that exit was my only way out into anywhere I needed to go in Nashville, and it's it's very very backed up all the time. So whether you're trying to get on the interstate, whether you're trying to get off the interstate, whether you just need to cross under the interstate to go to another part of town. It's nothing to sit there for 20, 30, 40 minutes and mm. just wait for traffic to move. And uh, so one day I was just sitting in it thinking about NPR and I decided to ride into Curious Nashville. <laughs> so how did this bottleneck at Exit 59 affect your day to day life? Well, uh, if I wanted to go that way for work, I needed to budget. I mean, an extra half an hour just to get onto the interstate and get going. Um, which if anybody drives on 24 every day, uh, just a half an hour to get onto 24 is not buying you that much time. Um, and to be honest, it's sort of over the years as they've continued to build more and more construction on bell road, it has become faster to just go the opposite direction all the way to 65 and drive all the way around the city to get where I'm going most of the time, Wow! which is, you know, Inconvenient. <laughs> to say the least. Yeah. <laughs> so what were your workarounds to the problem outside of, you know, taking these alternate routes? Uh, I have I've never been able to find a workaround other than driving hmm. some other way around that exit. I did move a little closer. Uh, I'm still on Bell Road, but I'm not quite right at the exit like I used to be. Uh, so I just I just make it a point to go any other way I can. So before you moved, did this really interrupt your interactions with friends and like how you were just going out to enjoy your beautiful day? But, you know, exit 59, put it, put the kibosh on that. It did. And, you know, so I lived on the west side of the exit um, and on the east side of it, or I guess the east side of 24, you know, there's the the amazing southeast branch Nashville library. There's the there's a lot of things over there that would have been really convenient to my house. I could almost see them from my window. Uh, but I, I literally never went over there because it just wasn't worth fighting the traffic. And so, which is a shame because, you know, that branch of the library is actually quite lovely. That's very unique. Um, you're, you're sitting at your window. You're looking at these beautiful <laughs> things from your house, but you can't get to them because of the interstate. Wow. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville and I'm your host, Khalil Colonna. We're here to answer a curious Nashville question about why the Bell Road exit off I-24 is such a mess. 
Here to answer that question is Harpeth Hall Jr. and former WPLN intern Hallie Graham. What's up, Hallie? Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's, it's so good to be here. So when you first heard Rusty's question, what was your reaction? Well, I am a commuter myself. I drive into school a fair amount um, of mileage every day, and I, too, struggle with Nashville traffic um, before the pandemic and after the pandemic. It's ramped back up again. And I was interested in, in answering, answering this question because of that personal experience. So what were your next steps to try to get to the bottom of this? So I needed to learn about the logistics of traffic. I had some experience as a motorist, but not as like a traffic designer, a civil engineer. So I had to learn a lot of uh, terms that people use um, when they talk about traffic uh, professionally and also on websites. And so I reached out to TDOT. I reached out to um, a civil engineer to sort of get to the bottom of that jargon, if you will. So what was tricky? What difficulties outside of understanding the jargon and lexicon? What difficulties did you run into? Um, so, like, finding time to get over there also, um, to get over to the exit was difficult because, as um, Rusty has demonstrated, it's difficult to get over there because of the traffic. Mm -hmm. But also um, looking at different maps and also finding solutions was really difficult because this has been a problem for a long time. Okay, okay. So, in these conversations you had, what did you learn Good question. I learned that the Bell Road exit was not originally designed to be as problematic as it is right now. Um, of course, it's not designed to be problematic, but they, I'm not sure how familiar you are with the exit, but um, there's sort of a, a bridge pier in the middle of two uh, same going lanes. So originally that bridge pier didn't separate as many cars as it does now. They've added two lanes on the outside. So um, just little problems like that that weren't originally intended in the design, but were added later to accommodate more cars, but actually didn't accommodate those cars well enough. Okay. Okay. So do you think maybe that's partially because they didn't anticipate the influx of people moving here? Exactly. That mm. is That was part of the problem for sure. So did you know anything about the divergent diamond interchanges before this? Before Rusty asked this question, absolutely not. Okay. Right. Okay. So how did you learn about them? I came across the diverging diamond intersection that came to exit 60, um, in, of course, my research for this piece. Um, but I learned about it through a TDOT video, actually trying to explain the traffic pattern of a diverging diamond. And after watching it about 47 times, I think I've got it. Okay. Is it that TDOT video on YouTube? I believe so, but it's also, um, it's linked in the article as well. That's uh, Okay. Live. I think I've seen the same video and I watched it about 42 times. Okay, cool. So you got me beat by five. <laughs> But it finally began to make sense. So you drove out to the Divergent Diming intersection last night. Tell us about that. So uh, I drove out there, and it was later at night, so I didn't uh, encounter as many cars as you heard Rusty talking about. But um, essentially, it wasn't as—so part of, part of the Diverging Diamond is you drive on the 
wrong side of the road for a little while. You sort of you drive towards the left instead of the natural right of the traffic pattern. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was kind of strange. So you're going over a bridge and you're driving on the left side of the bridge. And while there's a median in the middle, you can still see cars on your right. And that's that was kind of nerve wracking. Um, but when I went out there, um, you know, there are a lot of traffic signals, but they're clear traffic signals. So Okay. So you're driving on the opposite road like as if you were in London. Right. Um, opposite side of the street. Now, were there established lanes for pedestrians or bikers? Um, as far as I could tell, yes. But like I said, it was really late at night, so I didn't see anyone biking or walking. But um, but yes, there seemed to be um, adequate lanes for everybody over there. Okay, so you're driving late at night. What was the traffic like? Did you see other people kind of, you know, maybe hesitate when making some of the important decisions at the intersections? Not necessarily. Um, the only the only hesitation I saw was when I turned around to go um, through the interchange again from the other side. Um, so I went through the diverging diamond and then I turned around to go again. And um, so the only hesitation I saw wasn't actually in the intersection. So I guess... What's happening is correct over there. Okay, so Rusty, what do you think of this divergent diming intersection as a solution? Do you like it? Uh, Yeah, I like it if it means, are they going to reroute? Like, will 59, exit 59 go away and we'll all use exit 60 in the future? I'm not exactly sure about that, but the, the... The point of the diverging diamond was to alleviate the traffic from surrounding exits. So since that diverging diamond is at exit 60, it should take some of the traffic load off of exit 59 at Bell Road. So you should see less cars or the the intention of of TDOT is you should see less cars at exit 59 because they will be sort of like you said, rerouted to exit 60 at the diverging diamond. Hallie, what's surprised you the most in your reporting for this story? Um, the complications around uh, planning new traffic projects. Um, this project has been in the works for a, a fairly long time, as far as I can tell, and it's just now getting completed. So um, the we all know that construction on the road is frustrating and takes a long time, but it never really crossed my mind just how long these solutions can take. Um, and it seems like with traffic, you need solutions now. You need solutions um, right now in your morning commute, but they take a long time. It sounds like she has some pretty specialized knowledge on traffic and infrastructure now. <laughs> well, I-, I should hope so, but still a lot to learn. Okay. Okay. Rusty, I'm curious. Are you going to use the diverging diamond intersection? Because now you can see your friends. Uh, yeah, I was actually just thinking, I guess I need to make a point to drive that way and see what's going on down there now. <laughs> I've been avoiding it for a long time. <laughs> well, please let us know when you do. Hallie, I understand that you were a pretty big fan of Curious Nashville before you started your internship this past winter. Is that right? Yes, sir. I um, I listened to a couple of episodes before um, of the podcast before my internship here, and I'm still a regular listener. Still a regular. What do you love most about it? Um, I love uncovering sort of the secrets, if you will, in some of the questions around our city. One of my favorite um, episodes was about different like animal statues around the city. And I I drive by one of the examples every single day. Um, So getting to know the backstory of some of these things I see really regularly has been really cool. 
So, Rusty, what are your favorite parts about Curious Nashville? Oh, man, I love it all. And as a transplant, uh, I've been here 10 years, but I'm not a native Nashvilleian. I have loved all the episodes that told me more about the city I lived in and why it looks and behaves the way it does. Okay. I'm, I'm curious, Haley, Hallie, what was it like you getting into this story? This is your first assignment here, and you kind of got into this story. Tell me, what was that like? How did it feel? Well, I've done some journalism and writing for my school paper, but getting into it on a sort of, I wouldn't call myself a professional level yet, but getting in to sort of more towards professional journalism that people not just at my school are going to read and see and learn from was very enlightening. And I count it one of the greatest opportunities I've had. Um, What was it like working with Tony Gonzalez, who heads up the project? Oh, Tony's great. Um, He gave me a lot of uh, tips on my writing, how to make it more personal instead of so, I don't know, um, like I kind of write in like a sanitized sanitized style and he kind of helped me make it more personal and more fun so that was great to work with him for sure so you're a junior now senior year's coming up soon what is your future for journalism um i'm gonna continue writing as much as i can i hope to do some more curious national stories uh pretty soon um here at wpln um and i plan to of course Uh, pursue journalism in college for sure, Um, writing at whatever collegiate paper I end up at. And that's still in question right now. So, okay. Okay. Now, do you have a curious Nashville question that you really like to look into? That's interesting. Hmm. I would say overall, I, um, one of my siblings is really interested in, um, you know, making Nashville a more walkable city. Uh, Nashville isn't like the most pedestrian friendly city. So I'm wondering in the planning for Nashville, why was uh, walking not introduced more as in other cities? I can't wait to find out that answer either. (laughs) That was Hallie Graham, former WPLN intern. You can check out Hallie's Curious Nashville story online at WPLN.org. She was joined by listener Rusty Keene. Thanks to you both for being on the show. We want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. Tomorrow, we're going to learn more about ancient Nashville and our indigenous roots. You won't want to miss it. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Lilbert, Rose Gilbert, and Tasha A. of Limley. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos-Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tudhope. The masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Namir Blade. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Find us on Facebook and Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Ekulona. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And be good to each other.